0: Welcome, everybody, to another edition of This Week in Doom. Joining me, as always, to bring the doom uh, is the green chicken himself, Doomberg. Hi, mate. How are you? Hey,
1: Greg, How are you doing today? Great to be back with you. Wish we could be coming together under slightly happier circumstances, but we do have yes. a very, very serious topic to talk about today, and ironically, probably on the other side of doom uh, in this case.
0: Yeah, no, exactly right. Exactly right. And the, 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 the topic at hand is the recent chemical spill in Ohio, and uh, you know, you, you wrote what I thought was a brilliantly sanguine piece. But even reading it and understanding how balanced it was and how calming it was for, for someone who who has a reputation for spreading the doom, I knew it was a very brave piece. I knew it was a very brave piece the second I, I opened it. So so let's talk about let's talk about your thought process first in terms of writing that.
1: So yeah, as you say. We are Doomburg, and we have been known to indulge in a bit of alarmism when we think it is justified. And there was a completely different piece we could have written, and we would be highly qualified to write it, and it would have stoked a lot of fear and angst, but it would be irresponsible to write that piece because we don't believe it to be true. But before proceeding, we should say the biggest danger in writing this piece is having a deep empathy for the victims involved and not wanting to do anything to minimize uh, what has occurred to them, because there are, in fact, real victims. And as we said in the piece, if we lived within a few miles of this derailment, we would be furious, uh, we would be panicked, uh, we would be getting out of Dodge, uh, right. we would we would question whether we could breathe the air and drink the water, and we would be seeking legal counsel to sue the living daylights out of everybody involved, because there is no greater violation than the violation of the sanctity of your home. The, the analogy would be like how you feel after a break-in, like this place right. of security and, and family and love um, has been violated. And the word violated is real here in this circumstance. And so how do you stand up against a tsunami of hyperbole without coming across as though you're trying to minimize it, especially for the people that have been impacted by it? And that was the part that we struggled with the most. First, with the decision whether to write it, because believe me, the easy decision would have been to just let this mania come and go and not get yep. involved. But also how do you do that in a way that doesn't minimize, again, the impact on real people because the impacts are real and the people are real. And in searching for an analogy for today's recording, the best I could come up with is sort of a plane crash, right? So if a plane crashes, it is extraordinarily tragic for the people involved. And the last thing the family of the victims want to hear is how safe airplane travel is, on average. Right, right, right. right? Because, you know, for them, yes. airplane travel is, is not safe at all, and their family, loved ones have died and, or been seriously injured if they're lucky enough to survive it. It's not a perfect analogy, but it's the closest one um, that I could come up with. And then, of course, the other danger in writing this piece, of course, is now we have been tagged in every crazy hyperbolic tweet with an expectation that we're going to um, engage in a back and forth with the authors of that hyperbole and somehow rebut it. And it has basically made our use of Twitter impossible in the last few days. And I've just given up because Twitter, as you know, uh, and as you tweeted this morning, is dissolving very quickly into a, a literally a toxic hellhole. And on top of all of that, this derailment in particular has become a deeply and cynically political issue very quickly. You know, for the first week, it was barely covered in the media. And then all of a sudden it became... The center of the news cycle. And very quickly, people, you know, resorted to their sides. And this became about, you know, um, Biden and his you know, secretary of transportation and their mismanagement of things, as opposed to let's actually take an assessment of A, what occurred, um, B, what it reveals for risks that we're taking as society and see what should we do thoughtfully uh, to abate those risks on a go forward basis. But that, that conversation is just drowned in the noise and our piece is drowned in the noise. You know if you look, just look at the Twitter analytics uh, some of the most egregious exaggerations and hyperbole are getting 3 4 5 times the views and engagement that our piece got. Which is fine. We expected that. But it had to be written and so we wrote it. That that's sort of the bottom line.
0: Well look, we'll come back to the piece itself and, and what you said in a moment because um you know, it bears repeating in a forum where people can actually listen to the reasoning behind it rather than just read the words and have like a fixed understanding of what it was you were trying to say, right? Because oftentimes that's the problem. But for me, it's been so interesting to watch this story uh, emerge because it obviously it, it happened and the initial reaction from people was, Uh, This is being covered up and they're arresting journalists and it's, uh, you know, why is no one hearing about this outside of Ohio? Why is this being covered up? And it went full conspiracy theory straight away. And then obviously that proved not to be the narrative, the media narrative. Then it provided a a fantastic vehicle for not just conspiracy theorists, but also uh, environmentalists. And it just became, as I watched it, just kind of morph and change in the, public conscious it just became a means to an end for anybody that wanted to kind of tack any kind of political bias onto it it provided the perfect vehicle and that's why i thought your piece was actually so important is because a you come at it with the right background b it was devoid of hyperbole and it was the only piece literally the only piece i saw that was saying okay everybody let's put all our biases aside for a moment, and let's look at the facts, and let's try and understand what actually happened here. Just facts, not opinion, not bias, just facts. And that's why it's so disappointing to me that you say that this piece has been drowned out by this tsunami of hyperbole, as you so beautifully call it.
1: Yeah, and it's been amazing to watch. And of course, you know these things, but when they strike close to home, it just happens to be an area that we, we know a fair bit about. Actually, I know some people who live in East Palestine, for example, and I know many people in the industry and I've had lots of conversations with them, which we'll get into a little later on about this event and what it means. There is a serious conversation to be had here. But when you dissolve into unserious, you know, all of the worst aspects of social media, then it drowns out that conversation. And it very quickly causes political polarization and it becomes um, a game of gotcha, team sport gotcha, as opposed to everybody, let's huddle up. And let's figure out what the best way forward is for society, given all of the trade-offs. And that's, that conversation is impossible in this environment. Uh, it also lays bare the ongoing eroding of journalism in the West, in the sense that it is almost impossible to get long-form, reasonably balanced, thoughtful, well-researched. Look, you, you could disagree with parts of our piece. We showed our homework. Here's all the links. Right, Um, and so here's the PDF file where you can literally see down to the rail car what was in it and what happened to it. You don't get paid to do that, of course. And and look, we should just be honest. That piece cost us money. Like it's not like you know we we issued it for free, and then we have a wave of unsubscribes from people who are blinded by their hatred for Biden and can't imagine that we would say that the EPA EPA in this regard should be trusted. Like, and we knew that would happen, Um, and we knew that it would make our lives miserable. For but like, don't not saying that to, to draw sympathy, but. I only point that out because um, the articles that do make money are the ones with the outrageous headlines and that feed into the, the fear machine. And again, coming from Doomberg, it sounds slightly hypocritical, but at the same time, we've always sort of had a bit of a cheekiness around Doomberg. and we've always written what we believe to right. be pieces that are true and that are serious and that point out interesting things about the world. And so um, in this case, if the word doom, you know, uh, on the national level, uh, we would be the first to be writing about it because it would be fantastic in the, in the rawest, most cynical sense, in the sense that it would bring an awful lot of eyeballs. But that's not the piece we wrote. That's not who we are. That's not the piece. You know, I wouldn't wouldn't feel comfortable doing that. But let's just talk about one piece of this, which I think shows the real failure here. What do you think the most controversial thing in our piece was? And I, I won't make you answer it because I'll just pose it as... A...
0: I would imagine it was your faith and the fact that you trusted what the EPA told you. Correct. That, that... That's oh, right. Okay, yeah. that, that doesn't surprise
1: me. Doesn't surprise. Dozens and dozens and dozens of how how naive are you? You're in the yep. you're in the can for Biden. Yada yada yada. Uh,
0: <laughs> there, there there is. I, I a- love the fact that that naivety. is just one dot to therefore you're in the can for Biden.
1: And look, Biden is currently the president, and we write critically about politics as it pertains to the industries we cover, and so we've only ever existed under a Biden administration. And to be fair, we would probably be considered more conservative than liberal and probably more libertarian than Republican. Um, But we're not afraid to give credit where credit is due. For example, with Gavin Newsom's U-turn on nuclear power, uh, we were the first to say that was the correct decision. Uh, Kudos to him for having spent his political capital to make that happen. Um, And so when we see what's going on and we see, you know, unfairness on one side or the other, we're not above pointing that out. And that, of course, enrages people who have sort of a...
0: Yeah, so pick a team and stick with your team.
1: But let's just talk about the EPA. So the reason why people think it is naive that we, uh, quote, trust the EPA in this instance, and I'll tell you the very narrow ways in which we are trusting them in this, in this instance, uh, is because, frankly, let's be honest, there's a vast swath of people in the country who think that the pharmaceutical companies have captured the FDA, and in the post-COVID world, that means that all industries have captured all regulatory agencies, and no regulatory agency can be trusted on whatever's in the headline of the day having spent more time than I wish interfacing with the EPA, I can assure you that anybody who thinks the EPA is going to go light on the chemical industry for a spill has never interfaced with EPA, period. And you should see the outreach from executives in the industry thanking us for putting that in writing because they hate the EPA in a lot of ways because they're they're brutal and they're random and they are sometimes unscientific and always opposed to the industry and they rarely listen to a balanced case and so on and so on. So the real reason we put that paragraph in there was because the most important part of the piece is what happened to the 24 rail cars that were derailed that either had a spill or were burned. And the trust that we put in the PDF file that we found that we haven't seen reported anywhere else, it's out on the EPA's website. It's not like they, they weren't putting that out there for people to... Have, you know, have some calm about the situation. We went and we found it. We did the original reporting. We went through each of the rail cars and researched what was in it and what the likely fate of it was. And that's what journalism is. Like, let's actually go and take a look. And the reason we put that paragraph in there was because our piece falls apart if that document is fabricated, full right. steam. And, and you know what? Shame on us for believing the EPA if that document is fabricated. We don't happen to think that document is fabricated. This document came out long before this was a national story. It's very consistent with every other train derailment document that you'll see. The odds of this happening are not zero. And look, if we find out tomorrow um, that the EPA fabricated that document, then we uh, should be uh, embarrassed. And, well, I mean, I don't know. I I think the odds are that we have no better information to go on. Let's put it that way.
0: Well, but also, it goes beyond being embarrassed, because I I know you well enough to know that if that comes out and proves to be fabricated, Mm. you'll be the first people to write. Hey. It's fabricated. Shame on us for believing it. Here's here's what the landscape looks like now. And and yes, mayor Culper and Humble Pie and all that stuff, but here is what that means.
1: And so as long as that document is true, and I believe it to be true, and I would be shocked that that document would be fabricated, then the rest of the piece, we stand behind. Here's the thing. We take risks as society all the time. One of the big challenges that this situation reveals is that there are swaths of the population who are taking serious risks that they're completely unaware of, and they're not the ones being compensated for that risk, of course. I mean, um, and so for a variety of historical reasons, which we can get into, there's a lot of hazardous materials making their way around the country every day that you know come dangerously close to huge population centers because of the way cities grew up and, and railroads were first laid down. And there's a real issue here. There's a serious discussion to be had. Um, and so yeah, like in my our view. The EP would not minimise the severity of an industrial accident of this type. Period. Quite the opposite.
0: Um, well, listen. Let's get into the piece itself because um, you know there'll be people listening to this that haven't had a chance to read it yet or read it, and I think this gives a much better opportunity to talk about the piece itself rather than just put the the piece out there. So, why don't you walk us through it, and we'll kind of dig into it from there.
1: Sure. So there were 24 rail cars that either were breached or caught fire. And that document that we've just referenced gives a full accounting of all of that. Now, before diving in, we should say, the single greatest anecdote or cure for fear is knowledge. Right. And when we were writing this piece, we sort of got it out pretty quickly because two things. First of all, the hyperbole was just exploding. But second, literally had heard from friends in the media that both you know, uh, Jesse Waters and Tucker Carlson were gonna run pieces that evening on Fox News, calling this the Chernobyl of Ohio and, um, you know, really inflaming uh, the situation. And we felt it would be a service to our readers if we could get it out before those broadcasts hit the air. In hindsight, uh, after watching them, Jesse Waters did go full uh, Chernobyl, yeah. and Tucker had a slightly more balanced uh, segment, which is fine. Okay, 24 rail cars. So that already, just knowing that there were 24, some were burned, some were spilled. Um, what was in each of them? And let's put our hands around it. And once you sort of can put finite measurements around the problem, then you could begin to rule out Sort of the devastating uh, um, hyperbole. Like I saw some of the craziest stuff we saw. One tweet that got went viral was: "This is the deadliest environmental disaster in the history of of the world." We last we checked, somebody had to die for something to be deadly, and we're unaware of any fatalities uh, right. at least yet in this instance. But, and but, I but, would look, say, the,
0: but the argument never stops there because people say, "Well, the, the long term effects." People will. I would say don't. the people of Bhopal would disagree. <laughs> Um, that, was, that was the one that came to my mind as soon as you said that, yeah.
1: Exactly. Uh, and, the, and, you know, um, and again, this, that the, the entire Mississippi uh, River has been polluted and people should be, you know, getting bottled water as far away as Mississippi, which we mentioned in the piece. Like, Okay. All right. So let's go through them. Two hoppers of solid polyethylene were burned. What's polyethylene? Polyethylene is a garbage bag. It's a plastic bucket. Like that is what polyethylene is used to make. It's used to make um, pipes as well. And solid polyethylene is the equivalent of burning a giant pile of trash bags. Nobody should get close to any fire. Campfires have all kinds of toxic chemicals in them. This is the equivalent of a very hot fire. Polyethylene, you know, structurally pretty similar to, say, diesel or gasoline. It's going to burn. It's going to burn hot. It's going to burn black. There's going to be some soot. It's it's ugly. But this is not, you know, a catastrophe. Four hoppers of solid polyvinyl were consumed in the fire. And this is more dangerous plume that produces some HCL. And so you wouldn't want to get close to that either, but as we said in the piece, um, polyvinyl is, is used to make PVC pipes, which every home, basically every modern home in the country is filled with them, and every major house fire has a lot of PVC that's burning in it, and when we have a house fire, you don't evacuate, you know, multiple blocks because there's a house fire. Um, one of the hoppers, and when I say hopper, it's, just, it's a different form of a rail car, um, yep, hop, yep. you know, transport solids, uh, basically. Uh, one hopper of wheat was burned, which is the functional equivalent of burning wood, one box car of medical grade cotton balls were consumed. One box car of sheet steel w- was damaged. One box car of frozen vegetables was consumed. Um, there's one that we don't know what it is. It's just simply had the label powder flakes and it looks like it was partially burned and the fire was extinguished. One tank car of propylene glycol was spilled into the environment. Propylene glycol is I think 99% of what goes into de-icing fluids in the US. It's a different chemical compound in Canada. And we've all sat on planes and had yep. propylene glycol sprayed up and down the outside of the plane, and that stuff falls onto the ground. And some of it is sometimes partially recycled, but by and large, you know, this stuff goes into food as a preservative and so on. So we would put that in the wish we hadn't spilt it, um, but probably not a catastrophe. Now, there's a couple of sort of more exotic chemicals. Um, one tank car spilled a little bit of ethyl Um, This is a pretty reactive monomer, but it's moderately hazardous and readily biodegradable. Two tank cars of petroleum lube oil were spilled. We've had all kinds of oil spills in the country. Um, two tank cars is relatively inconsequential, except, of course, again, in the local environment and in yeah, the creeks yeah, no, and all of those things. Yes, one tank car of diethylene glycol was fully breached and a second lost part of its load. That molecule is biodegradable, is low toxicity. Again, by the way, this is a perfect example. Diethylene glycol has been used historically as a poison because people will drink it. You don't want to drink diethylene glycol. It'll kill you. Right, right. The Toxicity, you know, you don't want to. Everything can be toxic at the right concentration, which is something we can talk about later. Um, this has low potential to absorb in soil and sediment. It's it's low toxic. Um, one tank car of butyl acrylate was either lost or burned. They're not quite sure. And then finally, one tank car of polypropylene glycol uh, was breached, and that material is relatively benign. So that's nineteen of the twenty-four. So you could sort of put those on one side. By the way, none of the chlorinated materials were spilled. They were all burned. So all of the materials that were spilled, at least according to the CPA document, were basically oxygenated hydrocarbons, which by and large are biodegradable, and over time in the soil, you know, nature has a way of healing itself. Right. Now, the five tank cars at issue of vinyl chloride. And vinyl chloride is a, is a very dangerous molecule. Five of them were basically undamaged by the initial derailment and fire, but over the 72 hours after the initial derailment, the local authorities, who, emergency response teams and so on, became concerned that these tank cars could explode. Um, it a, it's pressurized, really. You know, like it, this is a gas that has been basically pressurized for shipping, and and if it gets too warm um, or a variety of other challenges, it, the thing could blow up in a very very dangerous explosion. And so they made the decision with foreknowledge and forewarning to the community and they evacuated uh, a further perimeter around the area and they basically did a controlled burn uh, of these 5 tank cars of bottom chloride. That is the most serious thing that happened here. The authorities had a fair bit of time to decide what to do and how to minimize the potential damage and they executed it quite well. All told. Now, what you see when you see that giant black plume is things going way up into the air and then drifting off into the atmosphere. And that's what happened to the vinyl chloride. There is effectively no vinyl chloride left. And so when you see things on Twitter, like vinyl chloride, 2.5 million gallons of vinyl chloride is, yeah. You know, there's 20,000 gallons in a rail car. There were five rail cars. It's 100,000 gallons. It was burned. It's a big deal. It's a huge deal locally. But at the same time, this is not Chernobyl, right? And so- what do you do with this information now? Well, the first thing you do is, is you can now do a proper risk. And look, your podcasts always begin with, this is not investment advice. And I would say, uh, even more importantly, there's not safety advice. Like we, we, we've had, of course, many people from the region reach out to us and what should I do and should I be worried? I can't tell you that. It would be irresponsible for me to tell you that. But having a fair bit of experience with industrial accidents like this, by and large, this is a, a serious event but it is not a Chernobyl. So five rail curves of vinyl chloride were burned. You dilute the, the, the product of that burning into the atmosphere and basically the further away you get from the event, the less consequential it will be for you. Now, to the locals, they should be rightly angered, as we said. They, they should be seeking restitution um, and they should be compensated for the trauma that they were exposed to through no fault of their own. And we'll get into where the accountability lies here in our view and what we think the logical next step should be in our view. But that's just a framing. And once you have your arms around the totality of the event, then you could begin to rule out some of the more hyperbolic stuff that you see on the internet. And that was the real point of the piece. Here's the document. Nobody's talking about it. It tells you exactly what's in it. Let's systematically go through each of those rail railcars and give you finite set of facts that you could wrap your head around to properly put this event into focus.
0: Well, okay, so let's talk about the response. We'll get into the roles that the various protagonists played in this in a second, and as you say, we'll get into your suggestions about what it means and what should happen. But let's talk about the response. Let's talk about the response from people and what this says about... Society and about our declining ability to process any kind of news without it becoming either one thing or another. It's it's there's no there's just no balance, right? It's it's one end of the spectrum. It's either this is a complete disaster, and you know to see things like Chernobyl used as comparisons it was laughable to me. To be honest with you, I just was shocked that people would jump to that so quickly. But I guess I shouldn't have been. Or people will say well, this is just irrelevant. This is people making a fuss about nothing. Because, you know, as as I think you went to great pains to point out in your piece, this is something, and there are things to be upset about, but let's just try and keep it in perspective. What is it about this lack of perspective that everybody seems to have today that is so problematic?
1: Okay, you said something earlier that I didn't address that I think explains this entire affair. Because, look, derailments happen on average, three times a day in the U.S., and a fraction of those derailments involve hazardous materials, and a fraction of those derailments involve leaks into the environment. And we started this piece with the story of a vinyl chloride leak that happened 2.5 miles away from the Philadelphia International Airport. And again, while this was a complete tragedy for the local people involved, they didn't shut the airport down. Thousands and thousands of people traveled through that airport, totally unaware of what was going on 2.5 miles away. But anyway, I digress. The arrest of the reporter is what caused this otherwise right. unfortunately regular event to have been blown into the conspiratorial arena. What are they hiding from us? Right? And that event, which was when you actually watch the totality of the event and you see what happened, but it doesn't matter. The cover-up right, is always worse than the crime. And yes. nothing drives the clickbait industry like big government and big industry colluding to cover up a far more serious incident in the name of preventing panic, let's say. So the arrest of that reporter was the seed that, you know, bloomed into the mania that we see today, in my view.
0: Now, what was, that, what was the reality for people who don't know? What was the reality about that arrest? So it was at a Governor DeWine's press conference
1: in Ohio. And in the view of the police, this reporter was being um, loudly disruptive while the governor was speaking. And the arrest didn't go very well. And so if you watch just the end of the arrest, you think that there's, you know, this is a far more serious circumstance than it is. I think it was a catastrophic mistake to arrest this reporter for a variety of reasons, not the least of which it's the seed that caused this bloom that we're now all, you know, uh, wading through. Um, It was a decision made by somebody. It was, I believe, an incorrect decision. But it was not, in our view, proof of a cover up but that's how it was spun. And that's what drove this thing out of control uh, in our view. And what that means, of course, is in this new media environment, back to your original question, you have to be extraordinarily careful with how you manage the communication around such topics because unfortunately, for reasons justified and unjustified, the faith in our institutions, especially in the US, has probably never been at its lowest. And that's sad, and that's a deeper problem that goes well beyond this derailment. And I don't know what the solution to that problem is, but it, it is a really, really serious one.
0: Okay, so let's then get into the various protagonists in this situation and your assessment of culpability, of what perhaps they should do to change things going forward. Let's start with the U.S. rail industry, which, as you said, there are, there are regular derailments. It's a hazard of doing business on railroads, Let's talk about their role in this whole thing as you see it.
1: Yeah, so before we dive into the railroads, let's just say at the highest level, in order of safety, pipelines are safer than the railroads, which are much, much, much safer than trucking. The railroads, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, as we said with the opening analogy, the rail industry's PR around this incident is going to be, we are the safest, you know, extraordinarily safe, um, air tra- airplane travel is much safer than driving a car. That's essentially what right, you're going to be right. saving. And, and they will be right in that. So we'll come back to that later. Uh, when it comes to, um, it, this might be the safest way or a safe way to ship something, but does it actually need to be shipped is an entirely different question that I think the chemical right. industry needs to ask. Okay, the US rail industry is essentially an oligopoly with extreme rent-seeking powers. So the rail industry doesn't actually produce anything. It just moves stuff around. But it is extraordinarily critical to the operation of our economy. So much so that even though we are libertarian oriented, there's going to come a point where we have to ponder whether this isn't truly a public utility. And there's basically four major U.S. rail companies in the U.S. and they have something like 85% market share. And then when you go locally or regionally, they basically have, in many instances, effectively a monopoly. And because they have become the darling of Wall Street, because they have a monopolistic pricing power and a history of showing a willingness to use it, they have underinvested in capacity, they have underinvested in maintenance, and they have underinvested in labor, to the point where the industry is breaking down. And there's a huge friction right now, a multi-year battle between the chemical industry and the rail industry. The chemical industry is one of the biggest customers of the rail industry because which we'll talk about when we talk about the chemical industry, there's a lot of hazardous stuff that needs to be moved around for the economy to work. Right. And what's going on right now with the rail industry is they are acting more and more like private equity, you know, um, stripping these companies and decapitalizing them for short-term gain. And their equity or you know, their stocks are being rewarded for it on Wall Street. And the biggest proof of all that you need is that Warren Buffett owns the biggest of them. Right. Um, and, and who better... Uh, to understand when a company has uh, a huge competitive moat than uh, the Oracle of Omaha. And so there's going to have to be some deep question. Matt Stoller wrote a really great piece when the war first broke out between Russia and Ukraine um, called From Russian Pipelines with Love, where he talks about the midstream players in the natural gas market in the US basically having a monopoly and you can't move natural gas around without going through pipelines in this case and various other intermediaries and everybody along the way gets to, to seek their disproportionate share of the value being created. Yeah. And, and it just drives huge challenges. And here, the rail industry, look, they're the darling of the pension funds. They just look at, look at the cap table of all of these publicly traded rail companies, and they're filled with high-yield, safe bonds that produce you know exactly what a pension fund needs all the way out to 2050, 2060. You can match your liabilities with your assets and, and your payment streams and your cash flow streams perfectly and... And they're also the darlings of Wall Street, because actually, if you just look at the last few years, the ratio of dividends paid divided by capital invested is ever growing. And I talked to a really close friend last night in the industry. I won't name which industry or, or you know who he was, but we had a very long couple hour conversation and it was nice to get caught up with him. And, and he was very appreciative that we wrote the piece that we wrote and he's dealing with this firsthand. And his point was, Wall Street does not value investment and maintenance. What's well, the return on maintenance? Like in the long term, the yeah. return on maintenance is very clear. But Q3 earnings, Q4 earnings, uh, 2023 earnings, maintenance is a drag. You know, employee redundancy and employee training is a drag until something like this happens. And so this is the trend we're in. It's it's financialization of Wall Street. It is an oligopoly. The consolidation in the industry has been scary. And look, no capitalist should be for monopolies. Monopolies are anti-capitalistic. And Matt Stoller and I have, a variety of disagreements on a variety of issues. I think his substack, .substack mattstoller.substack.com, is doing a huge service to bring to bear the fact that we have an ever-growing series of monopolies across all industries that are then recycling some of those ill-gotten gains into political cover to keep extracting monopoly prices from the economy. And this is not a sustainable way to run a capitalistic system. And the rail industry, we believe, is in need of either substantially more government oversight, breaking up some of these large companies, or on the table, I believe, is full nationalization and all of the challenges that come with that. But the current system is 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 broken, and it is unlikely that the existing players can be trusted to fix it themselves, in our view.
0: Okay, so that being said, what should the U.S. rail industry do, and what are they likely to do, do you think?
1: I think, again, how do we run the electricity grids in the U.S.? It's sort of a hybrid public, private in a lot of cases, right? Yeah. And um, there are government mandates for how much you have to invest and what you can charge and you have to apply for price increases. And it's a, it's a quasi, much less private market approach. Uh, because just imagine that scenario where you had you know, extreme concentration in, in the power industry and those power companies were allowed to charge whatever they felt like whenever you needed power the most. Uh, there comes a point where an industry becomes a public utility. Public utility and the, the concept of a public utility is real. There comes a point where moving things around in our economy on the rail becomes so critical to the operation of so much more of the economy that it can't be trusted to the financialization of Wall Street. It's not like they've got a history of of showing that they deserve that trust. Um, And so it's a complicated answer, and we're not here to say that uh, this is the answer and we should go do it. This is the problem, and it needs a different answer than the one we have today. That's about as far and as comfortable as I'm willing to go as it pertains to the rail industry.
0: Well, it's interesting, you know, I grew up in the UK and when I was growing up in the UK, the British Rail was a national utility. It was nationalized. And, you know, the jokes about British Rail being unable to be operated properly and efficiently and always trains being late and what have you were were universal. And then at some point they basically sold off British Rail and privatized and people bid for different sections of the network. And that's what Ended up happening. There's, a, there's, you know, Southwestern Rail and there's Southeastern Rail and there's all these different private companies that have run the rail network. It really hasn't got any better. In fact, as time has gone on, I guess perfectly predictably, it's gotten worse for all the reasons that you talk about in terms of, you know, lower maintenance and trying to squeeze every last drop of profit out of a business and going light on staff. And um, you know, it's it, it's just that's the that's the cycle of these things. But in the UK. The railroads are very much thought of as a people-moving business, because the UK is is smaller. Everybody, not everybody, but a vast majority of people get public transport into into work. For example, so the trains are really thought of as a people-moving utility, not a goods-using moving utility, because the the road distances in the UK are small enough that trucking is arguably way more important and that's a big difference between the US and the UK in that you know so many more people drive in the US and the and the railroads seem to be certainly to my kind of casual observation much more about moving stuff around than people.
1: Yeah and the US as you know has vast distances and while there are concentrations of um, production in, in various parts of the country there is also as we'll probably talk about next, a long tail of small production facilities that many probably shouldn't exist, that are, again, owned predominantly by private equity companies or, or you know, otherwise privately owned, that are being run for cash, that are, represent significant safety risk to the chemical industry, and probably, um, as we could talk about with vinyl chloride a little later, need to be shut down. Um, right. And, and that's a difficult decision to make, There's always a balance. Do we want the chemical industry in the U.S.? Of course we do. The chemical industry underpins 25% of U.S. GDP. So, again, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. But there is an awful lot, and I mean an awful lot, of shockingly dangerous things being transported. And we should take a second and take a step back and talk about the definition of hazard because um, the media does a poor job of this as well. What does hazardous mean? It could mean might explode. It could mean very toxic. You know, there's a lot of different definitions. And so a chemical itself might be toxic, but it's spilled from a rail car might not be that huge of a deal. You wouldn't want to drink it. Right, right, right. Um, And if it's burned, yes, it's combusted into dangerous products, but so does a forest fire. A forest fire produces all manner of carcinogenic materials and the smoke and the smog and all those other things. But like what hazard means has become so, what's the word for it? Um, You know, the media has just blown this up such a huge yeah, it, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or the reverse. I mean, blown up into like, if it, it has the word toxic in front of it, it freaks people out, which I totally understand, by the way. Like the word chemical has a very, very bad brand in the population. So I'll just give you one small example. Chlorine gas was used as a weapon of war, right? Chlorine gas is critical to the purification of every ounce of water every American drinks, basically, except for those with a well. Like how you... Handle it. What you do with it, and and in what form it presents itself, makes something that is deadly toxic uh, incredibly useful and in life-nourishing. And so there's a lot of nuance here that people need to come to grips with, which is just very difficult in today's
0: media environment to get a handle on.
1: Let's talk about the chemical industry because yeah, the, I was just know, going to get
0: to that. Let's yeah. talk about that. We've we've talked about the rail industry. Let's talk about the chemical industry's role in this particular okay. situation.
1: So uh, the chemical industry moves around three types of things. They move around starting materials, they move around intermediates, and they move around final products. And by and large, the toxic stuff, with some exceptions, uh, lie in the first two categories, starting materials and intermediates. And as we said earlier, pipelines are safer than rail, which are safer than truck. So whether it's oil, whether it's pick your favorite, you know, propylene glycol, like we talked about, the de-icing fluid, some things probably shouldn't be shipped. And by the way, when you kill pipeline projects, Keystone or pick your favorite, you are, by definition, adding more demand to an already congested rail system. And so price goes up, service quality goes bad, derailments go up, all of the things that we talked about, which is why the killing of pipelines is, has so many second and third order effects that people who are opposed to them don't consider in their, when, they, when they formulate their opposition. So certain intermediates should just not be shipped. They should not be transported on public roads. And let's talk about vinyl chloride as an example. Vinyl chloride monomer is predominantly used to make polyvinyl, which is used to make PVC pipes. And I'm going to speak generally, and there'll be people in the industry who have a 5% exception or whatever. That's fine, I'm speaking generally. The vast majority of vinyl chloride monomer that is produced in the US, in the developed countries, is consumed on the exact same sort of Chemical factory zone that it is produced. In other words, it is what's known as um, back integrated. So you're making polyvinyl for pipes and you make vinyl and use it right away on site. And less than 10% of, of vinyl chloride monomer is shipped to these orphan, non back integrated, largely old polymer facilities that should be shut down. They just should be shut down. The US could stop shipping vinyl chloride tomorrow and nobody would notice. Now, Having said that, there are some products that are even more dangerous than vinyl chloride, and I won't name them because I don't want to give terrorists any targets, um, that everyone in the industry knows is a disaster waiting to happen, and we need the chemical industry to address that fact. Believe me, nobody in the chemical industry is happy with this derailment. The best-run chemical companies are the most angered by the fact that vinyl chloride monomer is still being shipped. Again, my friend from industry who has very deep knowledge and domain expertise in this area is the first to admit that as a consequence of history and financialization and pressure on Wall Street and boom-bust cycles and cost-cutting and bad actors, there's all kinds of nasty stuff that happens that is a huge stain on the entire industry, and it would behoove the industry to at least get busy getting rid of the stuff that doesn't need to be on the rails. Certain hazardous things, if we like the way our economy is run, needs to be on the rails. The stuff that doesn't need to be there shouldn't be there. Not everything should be transported. And will you hurt a few players? Will you put a few small factories out of business? Yes. Will it necessarily advantageously uh, impact the larger chemical companies and feed the sort of monopolistic tendencies that the railroad has suffered? Sure. There are no solutions, only trade-offs. Vinyl chloride monomer should not be shipped on the rails today, period. That's an easy, politically expedient fix that can be done. There will be people who need it who will be angry at me saying it. I'm sorry, but that is an easy solution. Now, the the more tougher ones, the ones that I won't name, they represent a serious challenge. And the industry has known this for decades. And the industry is, of course, very serious about it. But they're also putting a lot of blame on the rail system, um, which is understandable and frustrating for them. At the same time, we hope that this event causes uh, an urgency around, okay, let's work big to small what is the nastiest stuff we're shipping and what can we do to ship less of it? Less is better. None is preferred. Less is better. Let's start with the easy stuff. Let's start with the most important stuff. Let's get our hands around it because this could have been a lot worse. If those rail cars had exploded or you know, if it was a different material and it was in one of the very large population centers that these materials are routinely transported through, Look, there was a a derailment and explosion in Quebec where something like 40 people died because the the rail car transporting oil um, exploded in the middle of of a small town in Quebec. Like, we've had these types of incidents that were extremely deadly and pretty catastrophic. Heaven forbid if a major accident occurred with some of the materials that we know are being shipped through significant population centers across the country. And the chemical industry needs to get even more serious than they are spend less time complaining about the railroads and more time looking inward to say, what can we as an industry do to do better, period. Now, in conversation with my friend and with other executives, it has to be said that the industry is under assault. Of course, it's the chemical industry, nasty chemicals, right? And they're in the bunker um, all the time. The resource drain that the ESG movement primarily and in the past couple of years in particular, COVID immigration policies have presented to, the chemical industry is pronounced. So let me tell you what I mean. The number of people that have been diverted away from research and into counting carbon emissions would stagger you, It blow your mind. And it's PhDs. Like these PhDs have been removed from the lab and have been taught to use Excel spreadsheets. Right. And let's be honest, a fair number at some of the best institutions in the US, upwards of 50% of new chemistry PhDs come from overseas. They do an undergrad overseas. Coming to America is an unbelievable um, goal for these people. They come here, they get a PhD, they go through the immigration system, they stay and they work in industry. All of that was thrown into disarray because of COVID. And so not only do we have less PhDs coming out, the ones that are coming out are being diverted into counting the number of carbon atoms on the head of a pin. And so the, the, the policies that we're enforcing come at a cost. Like there's a cost-benefit analysis for every decision and the cost of diverting away these resources from inventing new products, inventing safer ways to do business, you name it, and being redirected towards counting and recounting and you know, looking at uh, various categories of carbon emissions because these are highly technical calculations that require deep sub- subject matter expertise sure. to execute well. And so there's a, a awful lot of blame to go around here, um, but the industry could start with what's the worst stuff and how do we stop shipping as much of it as possible?
0: So you've, look, you've, you've, you went through in the piece, and you've done a fantastic job here of talking through this in a much broader sense, but coming up with potential, not solutions, absolute solutions, but ways that we can perhaps get better at doing this. When you wrap in writing the piece, having those conversations with your friends, and the response to the piece, how do you sum everything up in terms of what the problems are what the potential solutions are, both from an industry-up perspective, but also from a communication-to-the-public-down perspective. What have you kind of learned from this whole process?
1: It's, it's not a happy answer, Grant. My big takeaway is that this entire affair and all of the strains of it that we've pulled apart are nothing more than the manifestation of our broken political system. Um, we are incapable of having lucid adult conversations about serious topics anymore. And it's a huge challenge. And I don't know what the answer to that is. It, it, it's, it, it, it's scary, frankly. It bodes ill for our society in the next 2, 5, 10, and 15 years. When politics break down and everything becomes a gotcha team sport, I don't know how you go from serious problem to authentic debate to Imperfect but better solution. I don't know, but that's where. Well, we look. Are.
0: I mean, sadly, the response is it's an absolute requirement that you have to put any politics aside if you're going to come up with solutions because they have to be apolitical by by definition, right? You know, the, the the party in power in in a position to make these decisions and in, and implement these policies have to be able to put aside how that might play to their base if it is a better solution. You know, we, we've seen all this with the, the pipelines and the Biden administration, obviously. We've seen it in Canada with Trudeau. Um, we've seen decisions being made that are clearly not in the best interests of being the best, although not perfect solutions, because of the way it will play to people's basis. So I, You know, sadly, you know, I share your fear and I share this idea that until and unless that can happen there is no chance of being able to just put in place policies that make the most sense.
1: Yeah, let me give you a concrete example. Gavin Newsom, on one side of the equation, was correct in what he did with Diablo Canyon. President Trump was correct to warn the Germans about their dependency on Russian natural gas. Um, I can say both of those things, agnostic to the fact that one is a hero of the progressive left, and the other is a hero of the populist right my opinions on both of them as politicians notwithstanding, it doesn't make me a traitor to either camp to say Gavin right. Newsom was right on Diablo Canyon and President Trump was right on German natural gas policy.
0: Well, but sadly it does. It, it makes I, you a traitor to both camps, right? And that's, that's the great <laughs> sadness here, right? That, that's, well, that's the great you know, sadness, that, that, being, that being balanced, being pragmatic and being level-headed is guaranteed to piss off everybody. Right. And
1: hence, our, our ongoing contemplation as to whether we should just stop being on Twitter altogether. You know, it, it just, uh, there comes a point where it is just um, unmanageable um, and, and bewildering. Um, and I'm sure, um, pro- probably won't leave Twitter, but because um, it is in many ways a fantastic platform that provides an enormous service, like the countless DMs we've been able to have with people who live in the region asking us various questions about, about the issue. But at the same time, boy, I mean when you want to talk about a toxic spill. <laughs> yeah. go, go to Twitter yeah. for all the toxicity you could ever have. You know, yeah, uh, Twitter is becoming
0: something of a toxic spill. All a well, listen, um, we still got a bit of time there, so There's something else I want to touch on. There's another piece you wrote about a week or so ago, and that is your piece about we we want to see more, which was uh, another pun about um, using the name of Seymour Hirsch. Um, and this, this Nord Stream Pipeline article that he published on Substack um, I find what's happened around that truly, truly extraordinary to witness. Um, you know, here's a guy, Pulitzer Prize winning investigative journalism, arguably one of, if not the finest investigative reporters still alive today from an era that is long behind us, sadly, publishing a piece on Substack saying absolutely definitively it was the US that that blew up the Nord Stream pipeline, going into extraordinary detail about dates and times and people and what was said to who. And of course, the story was based off a single source, which one can say, okay, fair enough. If that's the reason that the New York Times wouldn't touch it or the Washington Post wouldn't touch it because it had a single source, I, I can understand that. So he published it on Substack. What I can't understand is the fact that in the wake of this publication on Substack and the wake of the incredibly serious allegations made in that piece... Um, and I'm going to get you to talk about those because you did so brilliantly in your piece. The story then becomes reportable because the story is not necessarily the Nord Stream pipeline, but the fact that a guy with this pedigree has said such and such. And the New York Times and the Washington Post, it will be very easy for them to report about this story all of a sudden. But again... Complete crickets. Not not a word of it in either newspaper. The New York Post took a run at it. And the News Wires, Bloomberg, Reuters, you know, kind of took a a, a small run at it. But this article and this this idea has just been killed. Now I've seen um, Seymour Hirsch being interviewed on various platforms in this last week, you know, all of which have the taint of you know crazy subversive media, democracy now and depending on your political stance, you know that most people say, oh, well, that's a quack network and that's where he belongs, therefore there's no validity to the piece. I've been shocked, genuinely shocked, and it takes a lot to shock me these days because I am growing more cynical <laughs> with every passing day, at how this story has been handled. Talk a little bit about your experience, the piece you wrote, and the response to that.
1: Yeah, so as you say, there was a time when, and we opened the piece with this, with this great line, which is back when the media establishment was against war and distrusted the U.S. intelligence apparatus. Right. Seymour, Seymour Hirsch was considered a top-tier investigative journalist. Now, look, that was fifty years ago. Yeah. Um, lots of things can change in fifty years. And as we said in the piece, um, he became a bit of a nuisance when he started writing skeptically about the Obama administration. Let's be honest. And because um, yeah. you know when he wrote about the treatment of Iraqi war prisoners, uh, Abu
0: Ghraib, yeah,
1: yeah, Abu Ghraib. He, he was he was not considered you know a quack uh, or past his prime or a crank or a conspiracy theorist. Um, it was only when he began writing about uh, the killing of Osama bin Laden that the media really turned on him, which is instructive in itself. Okay. Yeah. As you said, first thing we did was like, Hey, this is a single source. It's not a single source. It's anonymous. And look, we're not professional journalists, but we try to be professional in our journalism Yes. Um, at, uh, at Doomberg. Like right? we are sort of citizen journalists, I guess, to borrow a, a tired term, but we try to be professional. We try to show our work. We try to make sure our facts are right. We don't always get our facts right when we, Get a fact wrong, we edit the piece. Um, And and it is what it is. Okay, what is the policy around publishing a piece around a single anonymous source? So we went to the Associated Press and we actually found their written policy. And it's basically in in the AP, quote, routinely seeks and requires more than one source when sourcing is anonymous. And they go on to say, in rare circumstances, Mm -hmm. one source will be sufficient. When material comes from an authoritative figure who provides information so detailed that there is no question of its accuracy. Now we said in the piece, if he got this wrong, his legacy, given what's at stake as an investigative reporter will be destroyed and deservedly so. And we said, and deservedly so in bold and italics. And then we went on to say, okay, let's put that aside. What does it mean if this piece is true? In our view, the destruction of a decabillion dollar energy infrastructure project jointly owned by an ally and an adversary is unquestionably an act of war. And Congress has the sole authority to declare war. And if what Hirsch wrote in this piece is true, and if is doing an awful lot of work sure. in what's coming next, Biden should be impeached. I mean, this is literally an and amazingly dangerous act that risks a nuclear war with a nuclear power, whatever you want to think of Putin in Russia, they are a nuclear superpower. And if a 10, $20 billion project that the US was a half owner of got blown up by Russia or China, what would we do? We just spent the whole week being obsessed with a balloon. Right, right. Flying over the Midwest. Yeah. Imagine if they carpet bombed Freeport, Texas and blew up the chemical industry down there. This is a very, very, very serious set of allegations. Now, again, the hypothetical of if he is correct is so powerfully important that this needs to be covered. And if anything, as we said, the name of the piece was Let's See More. Okay, media, don't just call him a crank. Do some reporting. Prove him wrong. Like. I would love it. And by the way, we say in the piece, we hope he is wrong. The best outcome of this reporting is Seymour Mm -hmm. Hirsch has ruined his reputation as an investigative reporter. Great. And it's binary now. Either he's right or he's wrong. Now, frankly, when you combine his reporting with the circumstantial evidence of what Biden said and what various members of the State Department said and various text exchanges between you know who and you know who, it is easy to be seduced into thinking this reporting is true. It rings true. I'm being totally honest, but I don't want to believe it because what it means, if it's true, is pretty amazing. And um, we, at a minimum, Hirsch's reporting has handed a giant coup to Russia and Putin from a sort of propaganda perspective. But let's also be clear, if Seymour Hirsch knows what happened, every major intelligence agency in the world also knows what happened. Yes. And um, this is a, a shocking thing in our view. And, and what does it mean that an administration, if true, would perform an act like this and knowingly work to cover it up from Congress while doing so? Like, if I'm a sitting member of Congress, this should be very disturbing. Now, the problem, of course, is Biden's opposition in this case is dangerously pro-war a lot of the time.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
1: this is an example where we have true bipartisanship. Like, and, and I don't know, like, it, I, as we said in the piece, I'm old enough to remember when being anti-war was considered liberal. And now it has somehow morphed into an alt-right slash pro-Putin position. (laughs) Like I have draft eligible children. If Congress were to debate and vote to go to war, um, my children could be drafted. And at least I had congressional representation along the way, which is the way the US constitutional system is set up to assume that you could just go flagrantly blow up a decabillion dollar energy infrastructure uh, of both an ally and, a, and an adversary is amazing to me. And by the way, what does this say for Norway and Germany? And what does this say for Germany's stance towards the U.S.? Like we talked earlier about how Trump, you know, was, was ridiculed for what he said at the United Nations, and I believe it was 2018, warning the Germans about their ongoing dependency on Russian natural gas.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, he was literally laughed at.
1: Yeah, literally laughed at. And and but what does what I mean if I'm a citizen of Germany, well, what is our relationship with the U.S.?
0: Well, uh, let's let's talk about that because this, and I think this this to me is the crux of the issue. If I'm a citizen of Germany, that's why it's so important that this stuff be covered, right? Because I would wager that the vast majority of citizens of Germany uh, know nothing about this, right? Because I, I think there's there's just there's this, this this amazing curtain that comes down over stories like this that somehow become taboo instantly in media right across the world. You know, I looked in the UK uh, papers, you know, respectable papers, the, the, the Times of London, the, the Guardian, the Telegraph, the three big broadsheets in the UK, nothing, not a mention. And, you know, you realise that for citizens to be outraged, which... They used to be, let's go back to the 60s and 70s in America and, and this activist investigative journalism era where so many scandals were uncovered. The Pentagon Papers, Milai, which was obviously um, Hirsch himself, Watergate. And you know, there were a string of scandals that were not only broken by mainstream media outlets, but hammered by those outlets. And, and they took great pride in doing so. Uh, And that's how people obviously found out there was no social media back then. That's how thousands of people ended up marching in the streets was because of the lead taken by mainstream media publications, you know, hard publications back then. Why why is it, you think, that this has become such a difficult thing to do? Because I always figured, going back many years, that there would come a point where being able to report these stories again and being the person that exposes this stuff became a badge of honor again, became something that you wanted to do rather than you got silenced. And whilst platforms like Substack afford the opportunity for guys like Seymour Hirsch to publish and get out there, it's still such a tiny, tiny avenue to get a message across to the broader public and most people aren't paying attention. How does that end up, Me?
1: I don't know. So on the one hand... Um, we have been huge beneficiaries of the development of Substack and the cool. ability to do long-form journalism. It is also true that the mainstream, you know, the, the the journalists who work in the mainstream media have an incredibly challenging job and are afforded comparatively small compensation for their efforts because the whole media complex uh, has moved away from them, and the advertising model is broken, broken predominantly by Facebook and Google, and um, you'd be shocked at, at you know how much more lucrative it is for somebody to pursue a, a different career than traditional journalism. And so uh, I don't want to just be piling on mainstream media. And it's also true that Seymour Hirsch publishes on Substack, we publish on Substack, and a lot of the worst garbage we've seen about this derailment is also appearing on Substack. Right, you know, right, so, right. Subs, Substack is a, in a way, taking serious risk in its light approach to moderation, which we, of course, have benefited from and approved, but th- that comes with some consequence, including a lot of garbage shows up on Substack 2, which then forces you to decide over time which resources are credible and which aren't right. uh, as a consumer. And Hirsch's piece, for all of your bemoaning of the fact that it's not reached the mainstream media, I know something about Substack. I can tell you that his piece, as we record here today, has 10,609 likes. What that means to me is it's probably been read at least two million times. Um, Substack is getting more and more reach. And um, those two million that it's reaching are probably uh, inclusive of a series of influencers. You know, because who reads you matters almost as much as how many read you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I would say this is a, both a risk and a potential turning point for Substack. Like when we first saw it, we cringed that it was on Substack. Let me, be, let me be totally transparent. If it's wrong, it's going to hugely damage the Substack brand. And we have created for us deeply personal, much like you know, like certain events are are locally <laughs> really meaningful. Um, if Substack gets significantly damaged because of this article, this necessarily has fallout for us um, because we have co-branded Doomberg with Substack. We love the team at Doomberg at Substack. Sorry. And um, it, it is a platform that has enabled us to pursue the work of our lives. And we're very thrilled to be partners with them. And we hope for the sake of Substack, um, in a way, that this piece is right. And we hope for the sake of, of the US that this piece is wrong. And so we're deeply conflicted uh, on, right. on the piece. But much remains to be seen. And Seymour Hirsch has published a second piece where he alludes to the fact that he has a lot more to say on the topic and that he is comfortably dismissive of the attacks uh, against him and the piece since it has been published and that we would we should all stay tuned um, for more. Um, and so we shall see. Again, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. The solution to the media problem that Substack represents is a low barrier to entry and a free and fair market to develop your own credibility. And um, if we had written a deeply alarmist piece on this derailment, and then it turned out to be what we know it will eventually be, Uh, We will have justifiably lost a ton of our credibility. And so, you know, it is, in a way, the most interesting potential solution to the degradation of mainstream media that we see on the landscape today. Interesting has both positive and and negative attributes. But the the rise of Substack is vastly underestimated by the mainstream media. It is disruptive, literally disruptive in, in the way in which Silicon Valley would describe it. They've made some mistakes. They're imperfect. They're humans. We know most of the main people at Substack, obviously, given our prominence on, on their platform. And they, like everyone else, are human. They wake up. They try to do their best. Sometimes they make mistakes, and then they go to bed. And so Seymour Hirsch's splash onto the scene in Substack was amazing, thrilling, scary, but it certainly made me think, right? And and so, in a sense, that's sort of the ultimate form of journalism. Now, let's see what he says next. He He does deserve a microphone. I can't imagine that he would... He would risk his entire career if he didn't believe. I, 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 I believe that he believes what he wrote.
0: Right, yeah, yeah. And, look, and, and when you're in that line of work, that's the barrier, right? Do you believe it? Can you put your yourself behind it and say, look, this is what I believe to be the truth. Now, there is obviously a chance that you're wrong. And the more experienced the journalist, the greater lengths I suspect they go to before they're willing to say, I believe this to be true. And that's why I think the fact that this was Hirsch with with a, you know six-odd decades of doing this, his process has been honed and refined over the years. And the more of these things he exposed, the more rigorous he has to be the next time someone brings something to him because obviously they want his name behind their story. And so I, one would imagine that his fact-checking and the level of comfort he has to get to with a source to print a story like this the bar must be incredibly high for him to do this.
1: Yeah, and, and as you know, as a content creator, and something we struggle with all the time, a piece like this might have 150 facts. Right, Our piece on um, on the derailment had, I'm sure, far more than 100 facts. And you could get a few facts wrong and not not lose the plot. right? But if you get a fact or two wrong, that can be used as a wedge to discredit the other 148 that he might have published.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean... The thrust of his accusation and his reporting is that the U.S. and Norway blew up this pipeline. Imagine that he got a critical fact wrong about um, the nature of the explosives that were used or the day in which it was right. done or whatever. That would be devastating to his credibility and not necessarily impact the correctness of his conclusions. And people make mistakes. We make mistakes not all the time. We try our, hard, our best not to make them. But when we do make them, we say, okay, let's fix it on the website right away. And then what do we do wrong so that we can prevent making that mistake again? And by the way, as your audience grows, that responsibility grows. Like when we were first starting out and we were being read by a thousand people, that's a different situation. And we were less experienced than where we are today. And so it is entirely possible that there are key facts of his reporting that are wrong, but that the underlying conclusion is 100% right. And so we'll see. Again, in, in a preamble piece, which nobody read, compared to this piece at least, and we quoted it in ours, um, he said, you know, this piece is the truth that three months worth of work makes us believe, or something like that. I could get the exact right. quote. Right. But like he said, like, I believe this to be true, and I spent three months working on the piece. And what I would say is the gauntlet has been thrown down to the mainstream media. Like, the Washington Post has no shortage of contacts in the intelligence community. The New York Times, they have the resources. CNN, Wall Street Journal, pick your favorite. Let's see. Well, let's the see, New York let's Times let's has,
0: has the resources, and it also has a very long-standing relationship with Seymour Hirsch, and a, a deeper understanding than any other media outlet of his credibility, of his legitimacy. Again, you know, which which is, is why it makes it all the more surprising to me that he's been effectively kind of shunned by that organization in particular.
1: Yeah, and again, that sort of wrapped the whole conversation sort of into a, a little bit of a bow, like. The rise of Substack and the piece, for example, that we wrote about the train derailment compared to the piece we quoted from, you know, Newsweek is a sort of second order and real phenomenon that is disrupting the manner in which we consume information and entertainment. And um, it's real. And uh, unless the mainstream media does a better job of responding to a piece like this that appears on Substack, they risk and ever decreasing relevancy in our discourse. And in many ways, that's tragic. The country was better when people trusted the media and when people trusted the government. The blowback on our reliance on that PDF file from the EPA is sad proof of just how far that trust has been decayed. And one, one hopes that we've not gone so far beyond what is recoverable as a society because that outcome is not a pleasant
0: one. Yeah, look, you're right, and, and that you know that trust that trust in government has to be earned, and once it's earned, it has to be maintained. And, and successive governments have done a piss poor job of maintaining that. Well, I look, that, that is a that is a perfect bow to wrap around this conversation. And I thank you for for doing this. We're recording this on Sunday morning, so thanks for giving up some of your Sunday morning to to have this conversation. For anybody listening to this, um, and we'll post this out in the wide, so everybody can listen to it and so anyone that comes across it and isn't familiar with your work and where to find you just give them all your, all your digits and your, uh, your apps
1: so the only digit we're going to give now is uh, doomburg.substack.com. given my <laughs> reluctance to even be on Twitter anymore I hesitate to tell you where you can find us on Twitter uh, but uh, all of our writing is at doomburg.substack.com. we publish six to eight pieces a month on energy finance and the economy at large um, mixing a bit of crypto once in a while and so, uh, appreciate the opportunity. Glad we're making this free uh, for everybody, just like we did uh, on the piece. And thank you, Grant, for developing such a great platform for, for us to have this conversation.
0: All right, my friend. Well, I will. Uh, I'll see you around the farmyard sometime soon.
1: I hope so. Always great to talk to you, Grant. Bye bye.